marvellous. Well, a very good morning to you all. If you've been around over the last several weeks, you'll know that we're working through a second series, second sermon series on the, on the second half of Exodus. Uh, every passage of scripture, however short it might be, has a message of its own. But it's only as we start putting them all together that we begin to see a big picture emerge. The wise Bible student, therefore, devotes some time to the minute study of short passages and to some to the great overarching themes of the whole. In this current series, we're going for something of an uneasy middle way between the two methods, attempting to cover a lot of ground, but to home in on various specific facets of the message as we do so. To get the most out of these sermons, unless you're extremely familiar with the text of Exodus, you probably need to be reading along in your own time. It'll only take a few minutes a week, I promise, and God will speak to you as you do, so what's not to like? The, um, yeah. And the other thing to say about these, uh, these talks is that each one is only part of a bigger project, you know, spanning the entire book of Exodus. And we helpfully threw in a, ch- a middle cut of Hebrews in the center as the meat in the sandwich, so to speak. And you're not going to devour this sandwich in a single bite. But if you would like to know more, all the podcasts are freely available on the church website, www.thekingdomvineyard.com. For some reason, if you miss out the the, you end up with a place that sells wine in California. Thekingdomvineyard.com will find it. Please feel free to help yourselves to those and come and discuss it at Pub Church. And if you want to buy wine, miss the the off. The, um, The Bible is a remarkable book, as many of us have found, not just for its unsurpassed poetry, its profound understanding of the human condition, its vast philosophical wisdom, and its timeless message of hope for the world. It also has an astonishing ability to speak into the individual life, actually into the lives of communities and nations as well, into the heart of people in every age. Not for nothing does the writer of the Hebrews say, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Even the humble Gideon Bible in the hotel bedroom doesn't look like much, but it saved many a life and changed many, many more. Now, if you come from a secular background, it might seem a bit strange. But in common with millions of Christians worldwide, we believe the whole Bible is divinely inspired and has much to teach us about a God who loves us and desires relationship, even though we are ordinary people. And the reason why Christians still read the Old Testament even though Jesus doesn't appear until the New Testament, is that the Old Testament is the Bible of Jesus and his first followers. Sometimes obscurely and sometimes with startling clarity, the Old Testament speaks directly about Jesus. And it also, of course, points us unerringly and constantly towards the father of creation, who is worshipped alike by the Jew, the Christian, and the Muslim. The fact is, if we want to understand the New Testament, and we do, we better try and develop some familiarity with the way its authors thought. Apart from the author of Luke and Acts, they were all Jews. And to a Jewish understanding, the Exodus narrative is vital and it is central. The principal festivals of Judaism, its weekly observances, its rules for treating people right, their whole ethnic and religious identity all spring from this one book. 
But over and behind all those specific elements, there also lies a story, a tale of transformation that speaks to the heart of people in every age, in every culture. It recounts a history of an exiled people brought home, an enslaved people set free, a divided people united, a stateless people formed into a powerful nation, and a fatherless people reconciled to their creator God. If you don't know the story, give it a read. You can find it easily enough online if you don't have a Bible. The second half of Exodus describes what we've been uh, calling seven flavors of God's people. And since we are covering 20 chapters in just seven talks, I've called this talk, this series, rather wittily, I thought, Exodus Espresso. What we've seen so far is that the newborn nation of Israel are to be a people of holiness, a people of God's presence, and a people of heaven come to earth. And today brings us to Exodus chapter 31, a fourth flavor of the people of God. If you have a Bible with you, you might want to turn there right away. So Exodus Espresso, part four, a people of God's spirit. In the preceding six chapters, God has given Moses a precise plan for the tabernacle, a spacious and magnificent portable temple. From which, uh, which is going to form the center of worship for a people on the move. <clears throat> but as Moses stands on the mountaintop communing directly with God, it might have occurred to him to wonder how in the world he's going to build it. His life so far has consisted of 40 years living in uh, Egypt as a prince and 40 years in the desert on the run for murder living as a shepherd. Now 80 years old, his CV is remarkably lacking in arts and crafts experience and ability. (laughs) But if the question of how did occur to him, he by now knew better than to ask it. He hadn't known how to change Pharaoh's mind so that he let the people go, but God did. He hadn't known how to cross the Red Sea, but God did. He hadn't known where to find food and water in the middle of a desert for all these people, but God did. Now he's been told to construct this massive, intricately designed building. Moses knows by now something that we're all slow to learn, I think. That when God tells us to do something, however impossible it looks to us, he will find a way. Like the disciples feeding the 5,000. Like Peter walking on the water. Sometimes we have to obey what we can't understand. With that in mind, let's read together Exodus 31, 1 to 11. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of a chap who sounds like a sneeze. Ahissamach. Ahissamach. No one said bless you. That's not right. Ahissamach. Very good. Of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able people ability that they may make all that I've commanded you. The tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony. And the mercy seat that is on it. 
and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments of Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for the service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, so shall they do. Now, I believe this short passage shows us five characteristics of a people of God's spirit. And they don't necessarily fit very easily into the accustomed thought framework of charismatic evangelicals like most of us. But I actually think they should. Some people think that the the spirit-filled person is kind of a free agent, subject only to God, engaged in lofty spiritual enterprises that are far too exalted for lesser mortals like us. Others think of being spirit-filled as an emotional high, an ecstatic experience of some kind. And perhaps most of us tend to think of being filled with the Holy Spirit as something that only happened uh, from Pentecost in Acts 2 onward. Yet here we see the very same phenomenon way, way back in the Old Testament where it ought not to be. And it comes not as an ecstatic rush of uncontrolled emotion, elevating the individual to a higher plane of spirituality. It comes for distinctly practical, physical reasons. And it comes in a highly structured setting of calling, empowering, purpose, team, and leadership. Now, that's quite surprising to the Pentecostals among us. Certainly surprising to me when I first realized this was the case. So part one, calling, verses one and two. I I think it's a great mistake to see the filling of the Holy Spirit as a depersonalizing experience. Sometimes people quote John the Baptist out of context and say, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease, which sounds sort of jolly spiritual, doesn't it? But it's, it's talking as if ideally every Christian would look exactly the same. Nice little Jesus clones all saying and doing exactly the same thing in exactly the same way. But that is not what the imitation of Christ actually means, as God here points out to Moses. He called Bezalel by name. And more than that, he also mentions Bezalel's family tree. He knows his father, he knows his grandfather, he knows his tribe. He knows exactly who Bezalel and where he comes from, and he affirms his identity rather than subsuming it into the cosmic consciousness, man. Jesus does not say... He who seeks his life will lose it, but he who loses it for my sake will become a feeble copy of me. He says, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So let's give up any thought of more of Jesus and less of me. That's not what he wants. More of Jesus is more of me. I also think that these two verses would make an excellent weekly meditation note to self for anyone in Christian leadership. The Lord said to Moses, see. He wanted Moses to see that he had called Bezalel. Wasn't Moses' job to call him because God had already done that. In Christian leadership, as as many of you know, it's sometimes hard enough to remember your own calling. But an effective leader has to go much further than that. An effective leader has to remember not only her own calling, but also the multifaceted callings of those she leads. In fact, if they don't follow their callings, then the leader's old calling, own calling is going to come to nothing. 
What was the point of God telling Moses all these plans for the tabernacle? A prince turned shepherd wasn't going to build this thing. Other people had to be brought into the game. And whether you're leading a church, a mission, a not-for-profit, a ministry, a home group, and I go on to suggest that this probably applies to business, politics, sport, and every other sphere of human endeavor as well. Whatever it is, O oh man or woman of God, if you disappear up your own calling, you're in trouble. God's call on the life of others is essential to fulfilling our own calling. And that's because as imitators of God, who made us in his own likeness, we should be like him. We should always be looking for a relationship. We should always be looking to involve others in what we're doing, to see them realize their own potential. And just a simple thought about that very word calling before we move on. You can warn someone to keep away. You can instruct or advise them to go somewhere else. But you can only call someone to you. When God calls you to a work, he's saying, come and work with me. That's why Jesus said in John 5 verse 19, I only do what I see the Father doing. Meanwhile, back at Exodus 31, of course, you could argue that God might have enabled and empowered Moses to build the whole tabernacle all on his own. Kind of did that with Noah and the ark, I suppose. Come to that, he could just as easily have done the whole thing himself and spared Moses the trouble. That is, if it were only about getting the job done. But with God, it is never just about getting the job done. In these two series on Exodus, we've seen time and time again that God's plan is a man or a woman. God is unchanging, and his plan to involve humanity in everything he does goes right back to the creation blueprint in the Garden of Eden. Where, If you remember, God planted a garden, and he put the man in it to work it. God is always calling us into his work, and each person's call is actually specific to him or herself. He doesn't just say, oi, you. He calls us by name. I think some of us are almost afraid of hearing God's call. But when it comes, it is not an oppressive thing. It's loving and affirming and fulfilling. More of Jesus is more of me. More of Jesus is more of you. God is calling us into a work that is tailor-made for us. So the coming of the Holy Spirit is for everyone, but it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's a made-to-measure event. A people of God's Spirit will be a people called by name who know what they are so they can work well together. Secondly, empowering, verse 3. Of course, the best-known filling with the Holy Spirit in the Bible comes at Pentecost in Acts 2. After the ascension of the resurrected Christ into heaven, the Spirit comes like in the form of a mighty wind, with tongues of fire coming down on people's heads, a remarkable thing, and transforms the 12 disciples into, ooh, pretty ordinary chaps, into world-changing evangelists and miracle workers and preachers and church planters and all that good stuff. And I think that for many of us, that's kind of the way we'd like the Holy Spirit to come today, to just come and completely change us from what we are to that. But there's no indication that that's what happened to Bezalel. 
And this was certainly not the effect on Bezalel of being spirit-filled. As far as we know, he wasn't enabled to do anything supernatural or even what we think of as particularly spiritual. For him, being filled with the Spirit of God simply meant more ability, intelligence, knowledge, and every kind of craftsmanship. And although this verse doesn't tell us so, I think we can surmise, for reasons that become clear later on, that this was the kind of work that he already did. We might be surprised to learn that God fills his people with his spirit for things that they already do in their day jobs. We're used to praying for the spirit to come and help us when we pray for healing for someone or Uh, as we're going to do in a few minutes, or or, or to, to lead worship, or maybe to preach, or maybe to tell others about Jesus. But what if he wants to come and help us to put up a shelf in the bathroom, or to do the accounts at work, or to cook a meal, or to tidy the garage? Personally, I need the Holy Spirit's help when it comes to tidying the garage. Why would we think that God doesn't want to be involved in everything we do? He is the perfect Father. And if we did ask him to fill us for these supposedly mundane tasks, what might be the effect on our performance, on our temper, on our energy levels, on our closeness to God, and on our enjoyment of life? Contrary to a visual aid um, that came in front of you earlier on today, some of you might have noticed, no fun. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that, Vienna. Contrary to... (laughs) Contrary to the no fun t-shirt, um, which I'm very grateful did make me smile, God actually rather likes having fun with his children. Why don't we give that a try this week and, and please let me know how you get on. Asking the Lord to fill you with his spirit for mundane tasks. Why should mundane things be mundane? A people of God's spirit will be an empowered people, not just for Christian stuff, but for work stuff and for life stuff as well. Point three, purpose, verses four and five. The Holy Spirit has filled Bezalel, not just so he can feel good and be amazingly good at his work. He's filled him so that he can achieve a purpose. And in Bezalel's case, this is much more than merely utilitarian. The construction of the tabernacle and all its equipment required incredible strength and durability as well as portability. Not an easy mix to get with uh, ancient world materials. It had to be totally collapsible, but not collapse, if you see what I mean. That alone has got to require considerable skill. From the instructions given to Moses, I I find it really hard to work out how it all fitted together. And if you look at the various diagrams you can find on the net, Um, other people purporting to explain it. I don't think they've got any idea either. But Bezalel was the kind of builder you really want working on your house. You just show him the architect's architect's plans. He says, oh yeah, oh yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Not a guy who makes difficulties. And he was all of that, but he was also an artist. Because what we see in verse 4 and 5 is that he was... Also a master draftsman, a master metalwork, a master jewel, a master engraver, and many more skills. The purpose of the Holy Spirit filling him with all this knowledge and skill wasn't just so that he could build a thousand square meter temple that could withstand storms and heavy use, but still be entirely transportable. 
That was to make him an artist. Now, I think for many of us, there's an idea somewhere at the back of our minds that art is in some way unworthy of the Christian. I've heard it said that God deals in realities. So art, as imitation of nature and truth, is not something the Christian should be involved in. And somewhere in the mix, I suppose, is a misreading of Exodus 20, verse 4, which apparently commands us not to make graven images or any likeness of anything that there is in heaven or earth. But just to be clear, the verse after that, Exodus 20, verse 5, indicates the true meaning. Such things are not to be made as objects of worship. There may have been many good reasons for all the statue smashing and (coughs) painting slashing that accompanied the Reformation and resulted in the uh, destruction of the cathedral down the way. But in itself, Exodus 20 verse 4 was no justification. As we saw last week, just a few chapters after Exodus 20 verse 4, Moses was directly instructed by God himself to make images of cherubim, not only in the embroidery of the tent, but on the very covering of the ark itself. Thus, graven images were in fact part of God's design for the very center of worship. They're just not to be objects of veneration in themselves. Art is blessed by God in his design for the place he is to be worshipped, in the equipment used and in the garments of those who will serve there. Remember the garments are for glory and for beauty. Now, that's not to say that all art is from God. I think opinions differ on some of it. But when you experience the work of of a Caravaggio, a T.S. Eliot, a Bach, a Tolstoy, it's impossible to believe that the Holy Spirit is not at work in some art. People of God's Spirit will be a people of purpose and a people of the arts. Fourthly, team, verse 6. Verse 6 rather debunks any idea of the spirit-filled life as being a lonely one, elevated above one's peers. Our hero, Bezalel, skilled and filled as he was, didn't have to work alone. First of all, he's given a skilled deputy in Aholiab, again, a man God calls by name, and then also of a whole team of able men. In fact, if you read on until the end of verse 30, uh, chapter 35, you'll also find this included skilled women whose hearts moved them to use their skill. And it's these women who spun the thread and wove the textiles that formed the principal building material of the entire shebang. Uh, just a word on that. I'm, I'm not sure what the social rules were about genders and occupations, but it seems most likely that in those days, women were the spinners and weavers and men were the everything else's. I don't think that we should assume that God only wanted men involved in the work or that only men are mentioned here because the women didn't matter. The spinning and weaving were absolutely vital to the entire project. But here they're just regarded as a preliminary stage before the actual construction work and the artwork. And there's a strong hint in this verse at something that would explain why the women aren't included in this particular team. And it comes in that peculiar little phrase, you might have spotted this, I have given to all the able men ability. Well, you might think, if they were already able, they kind of had ability already, right? Well, I don't think that's the point. 
as was almost certainly the case with Bezalel, what this seems to mean is that God intervened by his Holy Spirit to further gift people who are already gifted in a particular craft, lifting their skill to a new level. That would explain the gender inequality in these verses, if it was only the men in society who worked as jewelers and carpenters and engravers and all that, and the women who were the spinners of thread and the weavers of fabric. But it would also say something quite interesting about whom God is likely See, spot the whom there. I was going to say who, and I thought, no, Jesse would tell me off. Whom says something quite interesting about whom, whom God is likely to gift with his Holy Spirit. In the light of Exodus 31, is it likely that God will grant, say, a gift of evangelism to someone who has never bothered to try and tell anyone else about Jesus? In the light of Exodus 31, is it likely he'll give a, a healing gift to someone who never sticks his hand on someone to pray for healing? Discuss. Perhaps this is another case where Christians would do well to develop a bit more of an Exodus mindset. Now, we can't say this with certainty because the text doesn't. But it seems to me logical to surmise that both these able men and the skilled women whose hearts moved them were in fact enabled and moved by the action of the Holy Spirit of God. At this point then, the unasked question that we put in Moses' mind earlier, the question of how, has been answered by the Holy Spirit working through people. And spirit-filled people work in teams. Fifth and last, leadership, verses 7 to 11. There's only really one thing I want to say about these five verses, and, and that is, notice the sentence that closes the list. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. It is Bezalel and his team who've been empowered and moved by the Spirit of God to do the work. But the plan has been revealed not to them, but to their leader. Occasionally I bump into Christians, and I'm sure you do too, who are fond of saying, uh, I was going to pick a silly voice then, but I don't want to belittle them. Oh, go on, let me. <laughs> Shall I? I don't agree with organised religion. I don't follow any human leader. I'm just led by the Spirit. Well, most of those guys aren't actually unduly arrogant people, though it can sound as if they are to us, if not to them. It's just that they've experienced bad spiritual leadership, not good spiritual leadership. They've never experienced a leader who's able to encourage and steer them as they've developed their own calling. So they just reject the whole thing. And the result is people who neither want to be led, nor heaven forfend, would they ever seek to lead anybody else. But sadly, this tends to take them right out of the game. They become keen armchair critics of others, but they don't tend to produce much fruit for themselves. Because all the time, much as they are seeking to be led by the Holy Spirit, they are refusing to be led in the way the Holy Spirit wants to lead them. The way the Spirit always leads us to work. In building the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God on earth, how effective could Moses have been without Bezalel? And how effective could Bezalel have been without Moses? Or Bezalel without the team that he led? 
The way the Holy Spirit works in Exodus 31 is the same as the way he worked in the lives of the apostles in the early chapters of Acts. First, they were called by Jesus and trained. Then they were empowered for a purpose. Then they worked as a team under the leadership at first of Peter. And later on, their individual callings became clear and off they went, many of them leading teams of their own. But it seems to me that Exodus 31 gives us a good template for what to expect of a people of God's spirit. There are people confident of their own identity in Christ because God has called them by name. They're an empowered people in every area of life, including the workplace. The Holy Spirit has met them where they live and where they work. There are people of purpose and are people of the arts. They enjoy and value not only getting a job done, but doing it with heart and skill. There are people of teams. They value relationship as God does, so they're always keen to find ways of complementing each other's skills and abilities. And there are people who value leadership. They're not ashamed to follow. And when the time comes, they're not afraid to lead. Now, we're going to pray for each other in just a moment. And I particularly like the opportunity to pray for you for one of these three things. If you're feeling that God is calling you by name right now, or if you've never felt that and would like to, please come forward. If you'd like the Holy Spirit to empower you for something unspiritual, like doing your job, please come forward. If you feel called to work in the arts and you'd like a touch of the Holy Spirit to help you do that, please come forward. But if you need healing in your body, mind or spirit, please come. If you just need uh, the Lord to intervene and help you in any way at all, please come. We're going to sing some more, worship some more now. Um, why don't you just stand right now and uh, I'll say a prayer. And then you can come forward as, as quickly as you like. Lord God of Moses, God of Bezalel, God of Aholiab, God of the skilled men, God of the women whose heart moved them to use their skill in your service. We invite you to come and move among us now. Would you come and move our hearts? Would you come and impart ability? And we thank you for the abilities that we already have, but we, we desperately need your Holy Spirit to come and give us more. And we thank you that in this passage of your word, we find that you are more than willing to do so. And that it is your Holy Spirit who imparts these things. So would you come and move, us, move among us now? I want to pray that you will call us by name. I want to pray that you'll empower some. I want to pray that you'll heal others. Just come, Holy Spirit, and, and do what you want with us.